I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. <clears throat> As this uh, impeachment hearing moves along, Russiagate 2.0, it should become more and more evident to everybody how important understanding foreign policy is. If you haven't gotten a chance, there's um, Ray McGovern did a really good back uh, breakdown of the Ukraine since the Cold War and the false narratives that have been spread and, and actually what has happened in Ukraine under since the uh, dissolvement of the Soviet Union. And it's a uh, he entitled the piece Ukraine for Dummies because he wrote it so that a high schooler could fucking understand it. And yes, high schoolers are dummies. But still, people just back into their partisan corners and they don't truly understand the foreign policy in the foreign policy objectives of the national security state. They don't understand the, the geo strategic placement of the U S military around the world and why they are placed in the places they are such as South Korea. And as much as it is, in order to shield South Korea and from North Korea being reunited as a single country, it is also to shield the entire peninsula from Chinese influence and therefore shields Japan from Chinese influence and possibly... Um, A an alliance occurring between China and Japan, which would be bad for the U.S. Um, for it would be bad for U.S. businesses. It would it would cut off the specific corporate interests that are in place to receive the benefits of the separation of Japan and China, where Japan wouldn't need some of the imports that they receive from the U.S. as they would be getting these imports from China. It would also create a more heterodox union between the two as you would have an Asianic um, style of unionization between China and Japan and by the United States implementing itself into in between that possible alliance they're completely shutting off the lines of communication in order to continue 
and to further American influence in the East. So over, over countries such as Pakistan and India, Turkey, and all these countries that would possibly find another route of benefiting in the world if there were an alliance between Japan and China and a true partnership were to form there. And this is what happens all over the globe, that the United States strategically places bases and interventions into specific parts of the globe to create pockets of alliance or allies that work in congruence with the United States and therefore economically challenges and and disrupts some of the bigger economic players around the world, such as China. And they do so as a strategic move in order to prop up their own source of power and influence and enrich themselves and their partner corporations. So when you, when you begin to understand these things, you can kind of see the moves that are being made in general. And, and a lot of this stuff is fluid. You'll end up with like somebody like, like Saddam Hussein will be an ally for 15, 20 years. And when the United States no longer feels that he's of use or no longer working in their interest, then he gets overthrown or a Gaddafi or someone like that. But Nick Sarwalk had made, um, made a comment to Dave Smith during the debate that they had about, about the Libertarian Party. And, and what he said is people don't care about war and foreign policy because it doesn't immediately affect their lives. And because it was in the middle of a debate about something else, it, it, it was not something that, that Dave Smith could really focus on in this debate. But it's been a comment that has been haunting me ever since that debate because if I feel like people truly believe that or at least it appears to people on the surface that that is an absolute truth to them. And some of this is hubris on on the part of the Americans and, and American citizens have this hubris about their own nation. And maybe it's because the country is so big and there's so much to see here and there's so much territory to cover and, and thinking about the United States. There's so many, so many people. And we have this, this illusory, you know, ideal of what American exceptionalism is. And, and so they don't think that 
understanding geopolitics is necessarily that important. Some of it's because American lives are so busy and it's hard to keep up with a lot of these things because there are a lot of moving parts. And like I said, a lot of this is fluid. Things change year to year um, in, in different manners. Whereas, you know, the Obama administration was selling uranium to the Russians and to a Russian company. Then suddenly the, the same people want to demonize Russia and, and make Russia into the bad guys again, just like it's the middle, middle of the 80s and the Cold War is still occurring. And they don't see the, how all of it links together. It's kind of like this, this sudden change and these reverberations kind of bounce back and forth. And it's just kind of like it gets a little frustrating because it can be kind of hard to understand. So without getting too far into the geopolitics, I want to take this time and use this podcast to express how ultimately important that foreign policy and war and the the strategies of the United States and how the actions of the United States in different countries actually does affect each and every one of us on day in and day out in in different ways and to different extents and what we should be looking at and why it is so important that we dispute many of the foreign policy objectives of the United States and how they use these foreign policy objectives to spread fear among the citizens of the United States in order to garner more power domestically as well as abroad. So what I want to start with is I want to look at the Cold War scenario. When the Reagan administration was working to draw the Soviet Union into Afghanistan. And once the Soviet Union was committed to going into Afghanistan, the whole goal was to give the Soviet Union their own Vietnam in order to bankrupt the Soviet Union. So what the Reagan administration did and what the National Security Agency did was they began to arm, fund, and train the Mujahideen. And they armed, funded, and trained the Mujahideen to fight against the communists. So these were, they started looking at, speaking about these people as 
anti-communist jihadist, right? And they were, this was the propaganda, the way they labeled them, kind of like the term moderate rebels. They were labeling them in this, in this manner to soften the American view on them. And so that the United States, the, the citizens of America, did not speak out against the arming and training of these Islamists. But what soon happened was after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, these rebels, these anti-communist jihadists broke up into separate organizations. You got like Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and uh, Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra and all these organizations where these people went back to their home countries, whether it was the Philippines or the, or Indonesia or Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or Iraq or Jordan or Egypt or Turkey or wherever they were from. And they started acting in revolutionary ways to overthrow their own governments. And so what the United States did was they began to issue wars, proxy wars across the world that began to kill many, many, many people. Jacob Hornberger covers this in an article about the drug war and terrorism. And he goes on to say, the principle is no different than the drug war with anti-American terrorism. Between 1945 and 1989, the big official boogaboo was communism, not terrorism. In 1989, with the unexpected end of the Cold War, the Pentagon and the CIA suddenly lost communism as their big official enemy. That's when they began intervening in the Middle East, especially by killing people in Iraq, including children. The massive death toll was compounded by the conscious indifference of, on the part of U.S. officials, as manifested by the infamous declaration by Madeleine Albright, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children from the U.S. and U.N. sanctions, while difficult, while difficult, were in fact worth it. The result was predictable. The interventionism and the conscious indifference to the high death toll produced the ongoing threat of terrorist retaliation against the United States. Terrorism replaced communism as America's new official enemy. This was, in fact, the... The policies, these were in fact the policies and the decisions that, that led to the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers on 9-11. They, the United States was flying out of Saudi Arabia, out of bases they had set up in Saudi Arabia, and they were bombing Iraq and many other you know, uh, Middle Eastern regions killing civilians and this came back 
as blowback, as the CIA would label it. And Ron Paul later expressed on the debate stage when he had that famous moment against Rudy Giuliani. So this was the cause of the 9-11 terrorist attacks was all this intervention over there killing millions of people, over 500,000 Iraqi children alone. And it created the retaliatory um, mindset of these jihadists, of these terrorists, so, so to speak, to attack the United States on their soil. Now, bin Laden specifically stated whenever he was planning these attacks that the intended goal was to lure the United States into Afghanistan the way that the United States had lured Soviet Union into Afghanistan and to completely bankrupt the United States in a, in a war of attrition, a war that they could never win. Because Afghanistan is rightfully called the, what is it, the empire killer. Now, a lot of people want to dispute these facts. Though you can find all the evidence and you can trace back all these, all these different occurrences in the way, in, in, in their own words, them saying that these were the reasons that we attacked you. This is what we were doing. This is what we were trying to accomplish. We want to kill the U.S. empire. Because if we bankrupt the U.S. empire, then the U.S. empire can no longer afford to be killing people all over the world. And so as they see it, they are fighting an empire. They are fighting a giant. It is a David versus Goliath story in their own mythos. This is the way they view this. And so this has come back onto Americans day in and day out, not only by our, our brothers, our sisters, our moms, our dads, our, our women, our children being slaughtered in foreign lands fighting wars for the last 18 years, but also in terrorist attacks, whether it's the Boston bombing or the, the 9-11 attacks or the 1993 attacks on the World Trade Center or any number of terrorist attacks that have taken place since 9-11-2001. These are direct impacts upon the individuals of the United States. And just as you view the terror attacks on 9-11 as a reason to go to war against those that perpetuated those attacks, the people that perpetuated those attacks viewed the intervention in Iraq, the starving of Iraqi children, the bombing of the Sudan, the bombing of Somalia to be reason to go to war with the United States, right? But maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you, you don't really care about that so much. Maybe you're, you're just like, you're just thinking that the reason that we should get out of the wars, if you believe that at all, is because it's costing a lot of money. 
And if that is your reasoning, you are absolutely correct. Okay? So since 2001, the U.S. has spent $6.5 trillion engaging in wars in the Middle East. Whether this is Libya, the Sudan, Somalia, um, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the bombing and in bombings in Pakistan, our involvement in Lebanon or or Jordan, six point four trillion dollars. In all actuality, if you look at it, in September of two thousand and one, the national debt was five point eight trillion dollars. Today, the national debt is twenty three trillion dollars and growing. So in the span of 18 years, the national debt has grown nearly threefold, being engaged in all these wars and all these interventions overseas. We're not even mentioning the intervening in Bolivia that just occurred, the intervening in Venezuela or Honduras in 2009, the coup that took place in 2014 in, in Ukraine. The um, the the insane sanctions that that are being put on different countries, causing costing the United States uh, farmers and and corporations money due to lack of trade with these countries. We're not talking about any of those things. We're only talking about. We're, we're mainly talking about the Middle East, but you're talking about a threefold rise in the national debt between the year 2000 and, and 2019. Or we can look at the defense budget for 2019, which has grown every year since 2001. It has never been cut. In 2019, the defense budget was $716 billion, almost a trillion dollars. If you figure in the black budget, it's going to, it's going to exceed a billion, uh, a trillion dollars. But for next year, 2020, the defense budget is $750 billion. It's increasing what? $34 billion? $34 billion it's increasing? That's the defense budget. But what about foreign assistance requests? In 2017, foreign assistance request was $30.7 billion. That was just what was requested in foreign assistance. International Affairs budget, who pays out the foreign assistance of 2017 was 518.5 billion. So an, an additional 30.7 billion was requested on top of that 518 and a half billion that was already being paid out. In 2020, the budget, the international affairs budget is expected to have grown to $621 billion. And we're going to turn to another Jacob Hornberger article because he, he covers an aspect of this. 
He says another aspect of foreign aid that is important to recognize is that the money is not used to help the poor, needy, and disadvantaged in the foreign regime. Instead, it is used for two purposes. One, to fortify the dictatorial control that the receiving regime has over its own citizenry, and two, to line the pockets of the political leader and the members of his regime, especially those in the military intelligence sector. That's why foreign leaders are so intent on pleasing U.S. officials when they receive a free check for, say, $100 million. That's plenty of money to keep and to spread around the bureaucracies where it then ends up in the private bank accounts of the recipients. So even if the foreign aid is being labeled as to feed the impoverished people of Ethiopia, it never makes it beyond the bureaucracies and beyond the politicians. It never makes it beyond the warlords. It never trickles down into the population. It pools and conglomerates up at the top so that these people further enrich themselves. They further entrich themselves in wealth and power and begin and, and, and create these corrupt relationships that ends up with vice president's children working on the board of gas companies they have no business working on the board of. And Lou, Lou Rockwell in a speech, went on to say, as an, as an enabler of inflation, the Fed is ipso facto an enabler of war. Looking back on World War I, Ludwig von Mises wrote in 1919, one can say without exaggeration that inflation is an indispensable means of militarism. Without it, the repercussions of war on welfare become obvious. Much more quickly and penetratingly, war weariness would set in much earlier. Lou Rockwell went on to go point out that Ron Paul said, it is no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banking. If every American taxpayer had to submit an extra five or ten thousand dollars to the IRS this April to pay for the war, I'm quite certain it would end very quickly. The problem is that government finances war by borrowing and printing money rather than re rather than presenting a bill directly in the form of higher taxes. When the costs costs are obscured, the question of whether any war is worth it becomes distorted. And this goes on to, to point on a further point that it's not even necessarily you today that are paying for these debts that are being racked up, that these are being passed down to your children and your children's children, and that nothing that that ignoring the problem that ignoring the the debt that is is compounding year after year after year is in and not paying it back does not mean that the US is off the hook for it 
it means that you're off the hook for it in your lifetime. But down the road, a future generation is going to have to cover this cost. And then their lives, their security, their livelihood is going to be further entrenched with debt and it's going to be worse off for it. We already see that that gen- the, the millennials are doing worse than their parents were doing at the same age financially. This is expected to continue down to Generation Z and Generation Alpha. All right, and it's supposed to continue. This downward path is expected to continue. And much of this is due to the inflationary policies of the Federal Reserve that in, 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 in funding these overseas interventions on the backs of credit and an inflationary policy that trickles down devastating effects to future generations. Another thing that we've seen is As Tom Woods points out in his latest book, The Pentagon Versus the Economy, despite reform efforts, military suppliers have two strategies for helping maximize the loot seized from the public, front-loading and political engineering. Front-loading refers to the practice of understating the monetary cost and often overstating the technical capabilities of a proposed project. Then when costs rise higher, sometimes much, much higher than initially planned or technical problems and failures slow down the production process, political engineering is employed to keep the program running anyway. According to former Pentagon military analyst Chuck Spinney, front-loading and political engineering encourage immoral behavior at all levels within the Defense Department. We exaggerate the threat to justify larger budgets. We use deceitful, if not illegal, accounting tricks to hide the true cost of programs. We reduce the chances of weapons being terminated for poor performance by designing success-oriented operational tests and by rushing weapons into production before they are fully tested. We obscure future costs behind the cloak of excessive secrecy. We tolerate cost overruns and bad management practices, some of which are spilling over into the civilian economy and damaging our international competitiveness. This continued financing is going to continue to punish the American people. Not only is it going to continue to punish the American people because the military industrial complex is set up in such a way that the government is on the hook for every piece of military equipment that is built in the name of these contracts, but it's during the existence of these contracts, military production never stops. 
And as military production spills over and more arms and equipment is produced, then the military can may utilize some things sit rotting and aging in storage facilities while other things are sold to police departments around the United States in order to militarize the the police departments. Therefore, you see police departments with MRAPs. MRAPs. When, When have the police in the United States, and if this is an issue that that we should be concerned about, all drivers should be aware that MRAPs are a necessary thing because MRAPs are specifically designed to to, um, push away the centralized explosive properties of landmines and IEDs. So if, if, if drivers, me especially as a professional driver, need to start worrying about landmines and IEDs while we're out on the road, someone should let us know. This should be at the top of the list of things that the American public should know. But obviously no one's in danger of landmines and IEDs out on the highways and the roadways of the United States. So why are local police departments driving around anti-mine vehicles? Explain that to me. When when has this ever been a thing? Okay. Why are local police departments being issued RPGs, fully automatic weapons. Why does why does the Department of Education have a SWAT team? Is it because the Department of Education needs a SWAT team? No, it's because the United States government has to do something with all this military equipment that is being produced. They don't have any use for it. There's not enough there's not an, enough conflict in this world to to utilize all of these all of this equipment. Why does the IRS have a SWAT team? For the same damn reason. They have to do something with it. They signed a contract that these people could produce as much as they wanted for the next 20 years and that the taxpayers were on the hook for purchasing all this. So they got to do something with it. It's got to be used. And what did they do to justify the use of military equipment in, in cities around the United States? Well, it's counter, it's counterterrorism. See, because what y'all don't know, maybe you do. I have a pretty smart listeners here. But what the majority of people don't know is that the United States government has looked at Gaza and the West Bank and the existence 
of these open air prisons and how the Israeli military polices these open air prisons and how it's cut down on their on 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 people leaving and entering these open air prisons that they said well we need to utilize the Israeli military force and and their use their counterinsurgent tactics and techniques in the inner cities because we're not just dealing with crime, we're dealing with crematerrorism. Yes. It's not just crime anymore. It's crema terrorism. C-R-I-M-I terrorism. That is correct. This is how they label crime in America now. So these counterterrorism maneuvers and these counterterrorism techniques, these counterinsurgency programs and training must be used on the streets of America. We have to employ Israeli intelligence to come into the United States and train police officers on how to do deal with these insurgencies, these terrorists within our own streets. We have to further militarize our police forces. We have to teach the police of our of our cities and our towns that these aren't citizens these are insurgents that the man the guy standing on the street corner selling loose cigarettes should be choked to death if he refuses to comply because he is acting in a terroristic manner by breaking the law that he is actually an insurgent that by, by utilizing a black market, he is illegally competing with the government-authorized corporations that pay their lobbyists and pay their corporate or overlords and their government overseers to make sure that there's no new competition coming into the market. So... Anytime you break the law, I think it's seven felonies a day, look the book up. Or three felonies a day, one of the two. It's either three felonies a day or seven felonies a day. I don't know. I don't remember. The general concept is every American in the United States breaks a specific amount of, fel- of, of federal laws each and every day without even knowing it. So we're all terrorists. We're all insurgents. It's just a matter of when they decide to crack down on us. We're all doing something wrong. Whether we realize it or not, we're all doing something. And so to to act as if this isn't making a difference, that, that 
this foreign policy that we are initiated in isn't making a difference that the NSA spying on U.S. citizens, collecting everybody's data day in and day out. Especially since the attacks on 9-11. Isn't somehow infringing upon our daily lives. That the ability for the, the police to take our blood on the side of the road, that this isn't somehow some infringement and that it's not related to the foreign policy when they are obviously running around with military vehicles and military gear. They're dressing more and more like an invading force, like an occupational army on our streets and treating us more and more like terrorists and insurgents, like we're the enemy, we're enemy combatants on our own streets. When police shootings measured between 2007 and 2014 were totaling up to just over 2,000 police uh, involved shootings. And last year alone, there was 1,200 police involved shootings. Yes, this foreign policy, this this for this this war, the wars that that have been occurring for the last 18 years are affecting us more and more and more each and every day. It's it's bankrupting the country. It's putting our children and our grandchildren further and further into debt and it is labeling us all especially you veterans out there as counterinsurgents as enemy combatants as terrorists and if you break the smallest of laws you are in danger of being shot and killed in the streets if you're even suspected of breaking a law and you refuse to be kidnapped on mere suspicion on being wrongfully identified as a criminal, you are more and more in danger of being shot in front of your family like a dog. And then Nick Sarwalk has the fucking balls to tell us, well, people don't care about war because it doesn't affect their lives. Maybe people don't care about foreign policy and war because they don't think it affects their lives. And if people don't understand how these things affect their lives, it is up to those of us. It is, it is due to the failures of those of us who understand exactly how it does affect their lives day in and day out. Anyway, that's all I got. I gave Nick a little bit of credit on the podcast before last. I felt like giving him a nice little blast on this one. So if, if, if you know people that do not understand how foreign policy affects their lives here domestically, 
Have a nice little conversation with them. Share this podcast with them. Put them up. Put them on antiwar.com. Introduce them to Ron Paul. Introduce them to the Mises Institute. Put them on the right track. Have them reading the right things. And hopefully we can wake more and more people up to these principles and to these ideas and and to what is actually occurring on our streets. So you don't have more people that are supporting the police and then being blindsided by an abusive growing police force not respecting their dignity and their autonomy the same way that they are actually respecting the police. Uh, I don't even know if that came out right, but I know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.